Well, it's good to see everybody tonight. We're going to be in John chapter 6, looking at the first 15 verses of John's gospel in chapter 6. It's the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6 is, if you thought it's taken us a while to get to this point, well, John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the New Testament, (laughs) and it's an amazing one. Uh, I was telling Sarah the other day that uh, there's Romans 8, and then for me, maybe there's John chapter 6. It's a magnificent chapter in the Bible. Now, we're only going to look at the opening portion of it today, and we're going to see another one of Jesus' signs. And this miracle, this feeding of the 5,000, is it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about it. In John's Gospel, this miracle helps us connect the dots between God's provision in the Old Testament to Israel and Jesus as the bread of life in the New Testament. And we'll see that, that theme more clearly in the coming weeks. But today we're going to look at the, mir- the miracle that, that kind of sets the scene for the whole chapter. So John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Let's read it now. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. In the Old Testament, God took his people into the wilderness and provided bread from heaven for them. Here in John chapter 6, Jesus takes his people into the wilderness to provide bread again. It's a story about how Jesus cares for his people, not just to care for them for a day, but as a sign of how he cares for them for eternity. It's a story about this insignificant little boy 
that loses his lunch to feed a city. About a couple of disciples who have no answers through whom Jesus provides for a multitude. This is a story about a power from heaven that can not only fill you, but can sustain you. That not only satisfies you, but uses you for God's glory. That not only settles you in in the deepest possible comfort in this world, but resettles you inside the heart of Christ, your Savior. It's a story about the, the, the super abundance of God, about how we can entrust it all to Jesus, how we can boldly believe that with him, all things actually are possible and that he's all that we need. It's a story about the all-sufficiency of Jesus in the face of all of our insufficiency. And those are our two points today. Our insufficiency and Jesus' all-sufficiency. We start with our insufficiency because in the Christian life, there's no other place to start but then with our own insufficiency. To see our weakness and our powerlessness. Now, that's not easy, is it? We like to deny it. We like to cover that up. We like to look good. We like to feel good. We like to feel in control. But the whole thrust of this story is to take us to the, 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 the idea of our powerlessness. Powerlessness. Sorry, too many nesses. Everything Jesus does in the story takes us to that low place because that low place is actually where the blessing is. So we see Jesus and his disciples, they were in Galilee where Philip and Andrew were from. And Jesus had been healing sick people. And a large crowd had had followed them and they were just eager for more, to see what more Jesus could do. So Jesus kind of takes them on a field trip outside the city. And he teaches them all day. He goes up a mountain, and it was, it was springtime. John tells us that the grass was green, kind of like right now. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was a well-manicured place. This wasn't a city park. It was a wilderness still. And Jesus was about to teach something important to this crowd. He was about to teach something important to his disciples. He was about to teach something to the whole world. According to verse 4, he performed this act during the Passover festivities. And that was an important time for Israel. It harkens back to the time of the exodus from slavery in Egypt. It was a time of, uh, of great nationalism for Israel. Kind of like our 4th of July, something like that. It was their celebration of freedom. Now remember what happened after the exodus. After God had brought Israel out, they're in the wilderness They're in the desert. And then what happens? Well, they get hungry. And the Israelites start to to grumble and to complain. So what does God do? He sends them bread from heaven. He he sent manna, this this flaky-like bread that tasted, the Bible says, like honey and coriander. You know, it didn't have to taste good. I love that it says that. This bread from heaven that fell like with the dew overnight. And every morning, they could go out and gather, gather their portion and eat it for that day. Now, they couldn't gather more than that. 
But God provided daily for this massive group of people wandering out in the desert. This was a sign of God's powerful provision. He could feed his people when it looked like no food was available anywhere, when no food was available anywhere. And then fast forward thousands of years later, and here's Jesus bringing about this new kind of exodus, and he's taking his people out into the wilderness again. And he's providing enough of bread for all of them to eat. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is fulfilling the role of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is doing what God always does. He's providing when there's no one else to do so. In verse 5, we see how Jesus is going to do this. He gets there, he sits down, and he sees this crowd before him. And we know this crowd was huge, by the way. Uh, If you look at at verse 10, John says that it was 5,000 men. Do you see that? Now, it was, this is the feeding of the 5,000. We know it as that. But this was actually a much larger crowd than just 5,000. That's only 5,000 men. There were women and children also in this crowd. I mean, we know that at least there were children. There's a little boy in the story. D.A. Carson says in his commentary on this passage that the total number may have been 20,000 or more. I mean, that's an unbelievably big crowd. That's an unbelievably big crowd today. It's a huge crowd that witnessed this miracle. It's the kind of crowd, it's so big, that if it didn't happen, I don't think it would have made it into four separate Gospels. I mean, think about it this way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that up to 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. And that's considered a huge number of eyewitnesses. This is a crowd, if D.A. Carson is right, that's 40 times that size. This is massive. It's a huge number. I'm not saying that this is a miracle greater than the resurrection. There isn't one greater than that. But this was an important miracle. One that all four gospel writers made sure to write down. One that Jesus made sure there was a big crowd to see. So Jesus is sitting there. He sees this crowd come toward him. And he said something to Philip. Look at verse 5. He said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Notice Jesus said this to Philip. Now, I think one translation I looked at, the CSB, said Jesus asked. All others say Jesus said because he's saying it. This is a statement. This isn't a question. It's not as if Jesus was wondering what he was going to do and he was kind of buying some time to search for an answer. I do that sometimes at work. It's a good thing to do. That's not what Jesus is doing at all. We know that because of verse 6. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Now what's going on here? What's Jesus doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's getting Philip desperate. He's revealing a need to Philip that Philip can't possibly meet. And Jesus knows he can't meet it. But Philip doesn't know that yet. In fact, Philip doesn't even yet see the need. 
So Jesus showed him the need, then made him feel how insufficient he was to meet that need. Now, why did Jesus do that? I mean, was Jesus just kind of some practical joker? I mean, I think Jesus was funny, but I don't think this is a practical joke. I mean, was he just trying to have a little fun at poor Philip's expense? I I don't think it's that either. That doesn't make sense to me. I think Jesus was teaching Philip something here. He was teaching all of his disciples something. He's teaching us something. And the first lesson that he's teaching is Philip's and the other disciples and even our insufficiency. I mean, do you see how, how powerless Philip must have felt? And what if, what if you were there? All those people and no bread and Jesus asks you where to get some. I mean, what would you have felt? What would you say? Philip was in an incredibly difficult situation, and it was right where Jesus wanted him. He wanted him to feel the powerlessness. Jesus is teaching Philip something about what Christian ministry looks like. In ministry, there are always needs. And the needs are always beyond our human capabilities. And we might think we have it under control. But do we really? Jesus wanted all of his disciples to learn what ministry looks like. You know, in Mark's gospel, I think it's really interesting. Luke's gospel does this as well. Um, The story comes right after the disciples return from their missionary journey. Remember when Jesus sent them out two by two? to cast out demons, to heal the sick. Well, they go and do that, and they took nothing with them but the power of Jesus. And then they come back, and they're just utterly exhausted. I mean, how could they not be? And when they got back, Jesus greeted them and said, hey, let's go away to rest. Let's go to this mountain. But then they get out to the mountain, and this huge crowd comes, and the, in, in those stories, the disciples actually said, what, what do we, send them home, Jesus. They need to eat. And Jesus says, you serve them. What? I mean, you can kind of imagine how that might feel, right? I mean, we've all been pressed to our limit where we're just, wait, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> we've all had times when we're just absolutely beat, when we're totally sapped, when we're utterly exhausted and we get home thinking we're finally going to get some rest and then the phone rings and more need just keeps pouring into our lap and we can't rest no matter how much we might want to we have to find a way to keep going and in those moments we feel so powerless don't we you know when we are full of strength we might start thinking that life is actually manageable But when everything is falling apart around us, we start to understand that we have no power at all. My son broke his arm last Sunday. We couldn't come to church. He didn't know I was going to say this. I had zero power over that situation. I'm just responding. We know what that's like. Our power is a facade. It's a mirage. It's not really there. We don't have any power. When life gets real, real, we realize how insufficient we truly are. 
And we're all like Philip in those moments. We're facing utter need and zero resources. And everyone is looking to us for answers. What do we say? What do we do? What did Philip say? Look at verse 7. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. In other words, he said, Jesus, you're crazy. (laughs) There's nothing to do. We can't possibly buy enough bread for them. Eight months' salary wouldn't be enough to pay for it. We don't have enough money to give everyone even just a slice. Forget about it. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Wasn't it true? Here's what's wrong with it. It's what's wrong with so many of our reactions to the seeming impossibilities of life. We don't factor Jesus in. We just don't, do we? Philip didn't factor Jesus in. He looked at the situation, and he looked at the resources he had, and he said, nope, can't do it. Man, I do that all the time. Now remember, verse 6 tells us this was a test. Here was the test. Jesus is saying, Philip, do you remember? Here we are, Philip. Look around. In this wilderness, all these people, do you remember? Do you remember how God gave bread from heaven? Do you remember how God provided when there were no earthly answers? The Israelites had to learn to factor God into their lives. Philip, will you factor me into your life? Will you think of what I can do in you and through you by faith in me? Will you trust me when there are no worldly answers? Or will you rely only on yourself and what you can see? That's the test. And it's the same for each of us. Will we factor Jesus into our life or not? It comes down to that. I think this is just a perfect way to test Philip. Take him out into the wilderness, away from all resources. Present a need so great that he can't possibly meet it. And then ask him what to do. See how he responds. What could Philip have said? What should he have said? What if Philip had turned to Jesus with a smile and just said, Jesus, I, I don't know where to get that bread. I mean, I know I'm from around here, but this is a little different. And even if I knew where we could get it, I don't think we could afford that. But I have a hunch you have an idea. I think maybe you have a plan. And I, I'm just wondering what it is and how I can be a part of it. What if Philip had said that? What if you said that? The next time that you're confronted with a need for which you have no answers. That's what faith looks like. The raw facts are that we are totally insufficient in ourselves. We cannot do any ministry in the power of the flesh. We can do unbelievable things 
in the power of the Spirit. But we simply do not have what it takes on our own. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner that we actually start to gain traction in our Christian lives. That's kind of counterintuitive. We feel like we need confidence. (laughs) Jesus is our confidence. The Christian life is not about coming to Jesus to let him give you some, some new tools to live better. Christianity is not about God sprinkling his wisdom on our little brains to help us through our days. He does that. He does help us through our days. But that's not basically what Christianity is about. Not at all. Christianity is about reality with Jesus. Actually knowing him, interacting with him, being with him. It's about factoring Jesus into every situation we find ourselves in. It's about coming to God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life fully open to him such that the impossibilities of life are no longer threats to us, but are opportunities for us. You know, if Philip had just only remembered what Jesus initially said to him way back in chapter 1, remember what he said? He said, Philip, follow me. Maybe if Philip had remembered that, he would have turned to Jesus in a different way that day on the mountainside. Well, you can. Part of the reason we see Philip's, Philip's failure of the test is so that we don't have to fail it ourselves. Jesus has called you to follow him. He's in charge. He knows you don't have the answers. He doesn't expect you to be able to figure it out all by yourself. He already has the plan. Your part is to only follow. Jesus is, this is amazing to me. Jesus, I mean, he could do whatever he wants. He could save people however he wants to do it. He could appear in a dream. He's done that. But you know what else he likes to do? Use you. (laughs) Jesus is inviting you to be involved with him. To let him work through you. To understand that, yes, you are totally insufficient. But you can receive all of his sufficiency. And so the first thing we need to see is our insufficiency. But we don't stop there. God is not the God who just beats us into the ground to prove how great he is. Yes, he humbles us so he can lift us. So we turn now from our insufficiency to Christ's all-sufficiency. Look at verses 8 and 9. After Jesus asked Philip what to do, and after Philip had no answers... Andrew piped up. Andrew's another one of Jesus' disciples. He's Peter's brother. And I guess Andrew was close enough to overhear this conversation between Jesus and Philip. I don't know. He noticed something. How he, we noticed, how he noticed it, we don't really know the details of that. But he saw this little boy. And he goes, well, there's a little boy. He's got some food. 
He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But then Andrew, just like Philip, failed the test in the same way. He followed up that great observation with a question. What are they for so many? Oh, well. You know, Andrew was right. It wasn't much. Especially for a crowd this size. I mean, the little boy didn't have good bread. He had barley loaves. Barley loaves are the poor people's bread. It's not the nice bread that you eat. You probably wouldn't like barley loaves. And the two fish weren't very much either. I mean, these were these are little things, like sardines almost. And they're they're mostly just a flavor of the fish. I mean the flavor of the bread. Make it tolerable. This wasn't like some great meal this little boy had. But it was something. And Jesus created the world out of nothing. So something small like this is actually just perfect for him. He can do a lot with nothing. He can do a lot with just a little bit. He doesn't need much. And what Jesus did next is, is, is just so amazing to me. In verse 10, he, he, he told his disciples to have the people sit down. He, he organized them. He, he settled them. He's seating them at the table, as it were. And then he does this incredible thing. He, he goes to the little boy and he takes his lunch. <laughs> it's not amazing. Jesus just took this little boy's lunch. I mean, you can imagine the scene probably. We don't know what he said. But we know enough about Jesus to know that wasn't a mean thing. And he probably looked him in the eye, bent down on his level. What do you got there? Some bread, some fish. I love bread and fish. Hey, could I borrow that? I want to use this to feed all those people, but you don't have to worry about anything. You're going to get enough. Watch this. And then he took it. And he gave thanks. And he broke the bread. And then they start handing it out. And there was enough for everyone. You know, I bet that little boy was probably really looking forward to that bread and fish that day. And when Jesus bent down and said, hey, I'm going to take this, and maybe it hurt its feelings a little bit. I don't know. It probably hurt my kids' feelings a little bit. They like their snacks. But this little boy is a lesson to us all. He gave a small gift to Jesus. And it was all he had. But in the hands of Jesus, it was enough to feed a city. Jesus used that little boy to feed 20,000 people. But because he lost control of his lunch and gave that control to Jesus, what happened a little bit later was that he actually had more than he started out with. (laughs) He had more than he could have ever possibly had if he had held it tightly. Jesus used that little boy to teach a lesson to his disciples. He used him to teach a lesson to the crowd. But even more than that, Jesus loved that little boy that day. He taught that little boy 
to trust him. He took what was his, but then he gave back far more than what he originally took. We see that in verses 11 through 13. He takes the loaves, he gives thanks, he distributes to the crowd. And look at the end of verse 11. They had as much fish as they wanted. They had enough for thirds and fourths and fifths if they wanted. Until they were full, the way Mark says it in his gospel, they were all satisfied. There were no hungry bellies that day. When they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. This little boy gave his lunch to Jesus and Jesus gave him back a feast. What was once so little that he might have even still been hungry afterward is now so much food that he can eat as much as he wants and still have some left over. Isn't that just like Jesus? <laughs> Isn't that how he always works? So why don't we trust him more? If that's who he is, why do I find myself clinging to my stuff that I think is my stuff so tightly? When we have this kind of God who does this kind of thing on the regular, why can we not let go of our little loaves and fishes? Why can we not entrust to his mighty hand all that we have and just see what he can do with it? A.W. Pink was an English pastor in the early 20th century, and he made a profound observation about this very reality, and I was just reminded of it this week. Remember that, that little episode in 2 Kings with Elisha and the widow's jars, the oil? Her husband had died, and she needed provision, so Elisha comes and does what the Lord tells him to do, and he pours the oil in the vessels. How long did that oil last? As long as there were vessels. Isn't that amazing? The point is, we have an all-sufficient God. Here's one practical thing I want you to take into this next week. We talk about the grace of God, how he is gracious towards us. We just sang, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. There is so much grace and mercy in your Father, in his heart for you, you can use it all up tomorrow and there'll be more than enough for Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and for every single day for the rest of your life and for this whole world. Take it. It's for you. We have an all-sufficient Jesus, one who can meet and, and super meet every possible need we have. There is no need too small, and there is no need too great for him. And he's always been this way. This isn't a one-time thing. It's not like, man, I wish I was there. We are there. Because Jesus Christ is the same today. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
This is just the way he rolls. It always has been. If there's truly a need, Jesus is there to meet it. Remember in Matthew 6 when Jesus said to consider the birds? His point was that that God takes care of them. They don't have to worry about what they're going to eat. They don't have to worry about tomorrow. So we don't either. Do you know how many birds there are in the world? I googled this. You should Google it. It's actually pretty interesting. 50 billion. Now, some people say between 40 and 140 billion. Whatever. 50 billion. Let's just go with 50 billion. There's 50 billion birds in the world. Why? Well, partly because that gives us 50 billion reasons to trust Jesus every single day. And you know what's amazing about that? You don't even have to see them. You walk out right now, you will hear the birds. That's a reason to trust Jesus. Now, Jesus might ask you to give something up. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he will. But if he does, when he does, he has this way of giving it back in greater fullness than ever before. You know, in some ways, if, if we hold it so tightly that he can't get his hands on it, we will actually lose it. But if we let go, that's when we really gain it. We might grumble and complain. We might get tired. We might show our true colors. We might not see the way forward. But if Jesus is there, if he's always there, what else do we really need? You can trust him. I mean, the birds do. Now, there's something else I want you to see. Not only did that little boy get back more than he gave up, you notice that he and the disciples both also became more than they once were. They were changed. They went up that mountainside as one type of person, and they came down another type of person. In the hands of Jesus, they were used by him to reveal his power. He took the little boy's lunch. He gave it to the disciples. They distributed it. They became channels of his power. They became ministers under him, for him, with him. Here's Philip and Andrew, a couple of blockheads who can't see that the creator of heaven and earth is sitting right beside them, worrying about where they can buy bread. And here's this poor little boy with a little lunchbox of a very modest meal. These people became the instruments through which Jesus worked his power that day. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing to me. Here's the lesson. When Jesus calls us to follow him, and I hope you've heard that call. If you haven't, just listen. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he will take us some tough places. Maybe even into the desert. 
And he will take from us some very precious things, maybe all the food we have left. And he will ask of us some impossible things, maybe to feed more mouths than our bank accounts can afford. But he will be with us in those hard places. It will be his power coming through. He isn't asking for our power. We don't have any. You know what he's asking for? Our weakness. He's using our insufficiency to prove his all-sufficiency. He's taking our meager bread and giving back himself. He always gives back more than he takes. He always answers our doubts with his grace. He will always fill us when we are empty. He is a God of super abundance. Maybe the wilderness is in our future, but so what? If Jesus is there, I'll go. There's always manna in the morning. Every dang day. And better than all the bread in the world, there's Jesus who calls himself in chapter 6 the bread of life for you. So we have two options. We can be like Philip and Andrew who looked at the situation before them and doubted anything could be done, or we can be like that little boy who handed Jesus his little lunch and watched Jesus feed 20,000 people. We can factor Jesus into our lives, or we can forget about him. We can be the channels through which Jesus works his power in this world, or we can close our lunchboxes and we can go home. We can starve a city, or we can feed one. Which do you choose? Which life do you want to live? When we start factoring Jesus into our lives, impossibilities become opportunities. Possessions become tools. We become channels of his power. Don't you want that? I do. And I just, I get in my own way. And you do too. We don't have to anymore. I heard somebody say once, you know, Jesus... When he was here living on this earth, he never got up in the morning and once thought, what do I want to do today? Because he was always about his father's will. Man, what a life. All you have to do is recognize your insufficiency and turn to Christ and his all-sufficiency. And you know, who of us can't do that? I mean... Who of us can't just say, I can't figure this out. I don't have any answers. I don't even have any strength left. Do you see how low the bar is? (laughs) It's not as if Jesus is saying, come up to here and then we'll start talking. No, he's saying, admit you can't do it. Admit your weakness. See your insufficiency. And that's where we'll start. Because that's where my power is seen most clearly. 
You know, only a few of us can reach the heights of this world, can't we? I'm not one of them. I'm just not. But who among us can't just fall down? When we do, that's where Jesus is. His grace lives there. That's where we learn to take our hands off of our own life and to allow his mighty hand to take over. That's where we become channels of his power, of his grace, of his mercy, messengers of his gospel. There is right now a city that needs to be fed and there is a Christ who can feed them and he wants to do it through you. Will you let him? Or do you have some really good objection as to why he can't? Will you be Philip and Andrew? Or will you be that little boy? Man, what a life we could live if we just learned to factor Jesus in moment by moment. He wants that for us. But let me warn you, when you start doing that, I have no idea what he'll do in your life. I don't know the places he'll take you. I don't know what he'll take from you. I don't know what he'll ask of you. The problem with Jesus is that you can't tame him. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is you can't tame him. We wouldn't want to. But you know this crowd wanted to. And we'll close with this. Look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, Moses had talked about someone who would come after him, someone like him that would lead this great exodus. Well, here's Jesus. He's the prophet. They recognize him as such. But then, verse 15, they sought to make him king, and Jesus, what did Jesus do? He withdrew from them. Why? I mean, he is king. He was the prophet to come. Why did Jesus withdraw? You have to jump to verse 26. It's not in our passage, but if you jump to verse 26, you see Jesus tell the crowd, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you got your fill of the loaves. In other words, they wanted him as king because of their full bellies, not because of him. Be careful how you come to Jesus, why you come to Jesus. He was satisfying their worldly desires, but as John Piper said, Jesus didn't come into the world to lend his power to already existing appetites. He came to give us new ones entirely. If you want Jesus to be king over your preconceived plan, then I'm sorry. He just won't do that. But if you want Jesus to be king over your empty belly, to be king over your insufficient life, your failed life even maybe, to be king over your wounded heart, to be king over your wilderness wanderings, he will gladly be your king.
He will walk away if in the face of miracles, you only want miracles. But if you want him, he will draw you to his heart. Want miracles alone and you won't get any. But want him alone. And you're going to have all the miracles you can stand. He didn't come to give you bread. He came to be your bread. How did he do that? Verse 51 says, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, they misunderstood his kingdom. Yes, he will one day come and conquer, but first he came to die. He came to inaugurate this upside down, this inside out kingdom. It looks different from this world, and they didn't understand that. The crowds missed it. Jesus is a king who dies for his people, who gives his life on the cross for sinners insufficient enough to just receive his sufficiency, weak enough to receive his power, hungry enough to eat his bread. And that's all he's asking of us, to be hungry enough to come to him and to take and to eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I, I thank you for the simplicity of this. We just have to come. If we're hungry, we just come. And when we come, we find far more than just something to fill our bellies. We find something to fill our souls. Someone to fill our souls. To save us, to rescue us to even use us. And Father, we want to be useful to you. Vessels of your power. Channels of your power. So Father, we ask right now, do what you need to do in our hearts to move us in that direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.